thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. going to continue learning from God's Word from the Gospel of John. And last week, if you were here, Rand did a wonderful job in talking about how Jesus turned water into wine. Remember the story? He reminded us of the fact that Jesus uses these jars that were used for ceremonial cleansing for water to show us that he was going to become that, that way of, of cleansing us from our sins. And today we're going to look at John chapter 2 from verses 12 to 25, where we see how Jesus goes to the temple and to the place where every year people went to sacrifice animals for their sins. And there are some amazing things that God wants us to learn this morning from his word about why Jesus does what he did in what we call the cleansing of the temple. And before we jump in, I, I want us to talk a little bit about the journey that Jesus took from, from Capernaum to to Jerusalem, because I think it's important for us to see the, the journey that was involved in getting there. So if you look at verses 12 and 13 from John chapter 2, it says, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the elevation from Capernaum to Jerusalem was upward, but he was going down south. So from Cana to Capernaum was about a day and a half journey, approximately. And then from Capernaum to Jerusalem was about 80 to 90 miles, approximately. So it's about three to five days of, of hiking, of walking, if you could walk 15 to 20 miles a day. That's a long, long trip on foot. So Jesus actually adds a day and a half of commute to their trip. And you're wondering, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus go further away to Capernaum from Cana, and then go to, to Jerusalem. Because he knew every year, the Jews did this every year. They went to Jerusalem for the feast, for the sacrifice in, in, at the temple. And this is what I think is very important for us to listen and understand and, and accept. And if this is all you hear this morning, I want you to receive this. Because the truth is, Jesus walked with his disciples this was at the very beginning of his ministry, and he, he walks with his disciples. And I don't know your journey right now. I don't know where you are on this journey as you walk this journey on this, on this earth in life. I don't know how weary you are. I'm not sure how tired you are and exhausted you are. But I want to remind you, I want to remind you that Jesus is walking with you. That he will spend time, even if that means to make the journey a little longer, to spend time with you. And you're not alone. You're not alone in this journey. He's walking with you. We see in John 14, it says that He is the way, the truth, and the life. We see Matthew 28, verse 20, it says, And behold, I am with you always. He's always with you to the end of the age. And dear believers, your journey is as important as the destination. For the Jews, it was all about the temple. They somehow had, somehow had to get there. But for Jesus, the destination is as important as the journey. And he never wastes a step along the way. 
he never wastes a step along the way in your journey. Before we talk about the temple and the cleansing of the temple, I want to quickly talk about the, just the timeline, the history and the timeline of the temple so we understand that. So in 957 BC, the temple is built. The first temple, it's called the Temple of Solomon. He builds the temple. And then in 586 and 87 BC, the temple gets destroyed by the Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar, okay, plundered, destroyed completely. And then the second temple is constructed in 516 BC. And after about 500 years, Herod the Great completely renovates the temple, completely renovates the temple. And this is called the second temple. And actually, because Herod put in the money and the work involved, this was actually called Herod's temple. It was called Herod's temple from now on. This was the time when Jesus was, was alive on earth. And at the time, this, this temple of Jerusalem was the epicenter of all religious, cultural, economical, and national identity of the Jewish people. This was it. Jerusalem was not known for its natural resources. It was not known for that. So the, the big festivity, all the traffic, the people coming to Jerusalem is how they survived. This was their income at Jerusalem. And some historians say that about 1.2 million animals were sacrificed every year during Passover. That's a lot of people, a lot of sacrifices. And the outer coats of the temple were, was a very unique gathering place. The Pontifical Council of Culture says that this place is called the courtyard, a place of meeting and of diversity. The outer courts were also called the courtyard of the Gentiles or the court of the Gentiles. So this place was a place where if you're not a Jew, it didn't matter. You could come and worship God. You could see what was happening from a little afar, but you were welcome to be a part of the temple from the outer courts. That was the, the reason why they had this area. Now, in the time of Jesus, this place became a bazaar. It was a place where vendors were selling souvenirs, sacrificial animals, food, as well as currency changers. And a lot of these things that they, that they were doing were not inherently wrong, okay? Because can you imagine traveling for hundreds of miles to get to a place having live animals to keep them alive? So if something died along the way, you could come to the temple and buy a pigeon or buy a goat or buy a, you know, a, a, what do we need for the, for the sacrifice? It was a service that was being offered, but what was happening was that they were providing reasonable services for unreasonable prices, and there was no accountability, there was no one overseeing what was going on, and everyone got a cut, most likely. And the currency exchanges, what was happening there was, now, the Jews were not allowed to mint their own money. They didn't have their own currency. So they used the Roman currency all over Israel. But the temple, they would not take your Roman currency. It was seen as an abomination. So you had to exchange your money for Tyranian currency to pay the temple tax. But the tax collectors wanted Roman money. So you, you had to have two, two currencies, two different currencies. And if you know what that is, to so exchange currency when you're traveling, it's a nightmare. And over here, even though the currencies had the same value when you bought stuff with it, the actual metal that was used, the Roman coins were about 80% of silver in them. The Tyrrhenian currencies had about 94% silver in them, so they had more value in, in a, as, a, as a metal. So you never knew what the exchange rate was going to be, and depending on who you spoke to, they would give you a different exchange rate. So there was a lot of stuff going on that was not really great in the temple. Now, if you look at this passage, we don't see direct reference to sin in the temple in this passage. 
But we do know that evil and sin was always prevalent in the temple. It was not uncommon for this, these things to happen. Because if you look at back in 2 Samuel chapter 2, we see how Eli's sons were wicked and everyone knew it. It was just seen as it was okay. We see in Ezekiel chapter 8, we see God gives a revelation to Ezekiel to see all the corruption that was happening within the temple. We see in Jeremiah 7 where God asks Jeremiah to go and, and weep before the temple gates. As people are walking past him to the temple and saying, you are sinning and this place is filled with sin and idolatry. What are you guys doing? So we see that sin and evil was prevalent in the temple all through history. This was the situation of the temple when Jesus walked into it at that time. Now, the question that begs to be asked when we look at this passage of Jesus cleansing the temple is, what was the purpose of him doing it? Why would he do it? Why did he do it? Was it to stop all the evils that were happening in the temple at the time? Was that his purpose? Was it to stop all the the exploitation that was happening to the poor people who were coming there every year to pay taxes and to make sacrifices? Was it because the place, the outer courts, were not being used for the, for the sake of, of Gentiles being there? Is that the reason why he did that? If it were to really stop what was happening in the temple, did it really happen? Well, the answer is no, right? Because we see Jesus doing the same thing of cleansing the temple Later in his life, we see him do it twice in the beginning of his ministry and also at the very end of his ministry after the triumphal entry. We see this in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. He does it twice. And there's a very good chance that after he did this in the temple the next day, everything went back to normal. The guys brought the tables back, got the birds back, right? There's a good chance everything went back to normal. So why would Jesus do this? And I, I want you to hear this because this is very, very profound. There are, the reason why Jesus did this, based on what I'm seeing in Scripture, is that he wanted to show his authority. Show his authority. He wanted to show his passion for the people, for the temple. And also, I, wanted, I want to mention this to you, and I'm going to explain this to you as we learn today, that Jesus is passionately and madly in love with you and me. That he is jealous He's jealous for you. That's why he did this. And I'm going to do the best I can to un uncover this truth to us. So let's look at this. Let's look at it. Now, so John 2, 14 to 16, this is what happens. It says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Drove them all out. Every single one of them. That's a lot of work for one man. <laughs> With the sheep and the oxen, he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, I think this is where there should be a little disclaimer that says that no birds were harmed, right, in the making of this. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The word trade is the word we get the word emporium from, okay? That simply means uh, a retail, like a, like a store, like a shopping mall, like a Costco. He says, don't make my house a house of trade. So the first thing I want you to understand is that the temple is God's house of prayer. The temple is not yours, he says. The temple is my Father's house. And I love how Jesus, from the very beginning, this is his first 
public appearance in a large scale like this. He goes to the temple, and from the very beginning, even the way he speaks to his mother in few verses before, he speaks with authority. He speaks with authority, not like those of the rabbis. We see this in, in Matthew 7. It says, For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. He was different. He spoke not as a prophet or as a teacher, but as the Messiah, as the sent one, as the Son of God. And this is what John is trying for us to understand, that Jesus was filled with authority. He was sent by God. He was sent by God. And we see in Matthew 28, it says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus and I like, I like how verse 17, Luke, sorry, John 2.17 says, this is what the disciples see. So imagine this guy, okay, this, they are new, right? This is their first year work being disciples of Jesus, following Jesus, the big, big road trip, right? And in verse 17, it says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. You got to be Take note of this, because whenever Jesus does something, whenever Jesus shows something to his disciples, they always led back to Scripture. They always are taken back to Scripture. Whenever God talks to us, whenever he reveals anything to us, it, it should always take us back to his word. I think so often we are taken away from word because we try to find answers outside of Scripture. But the more God reveals himself to you, he will take you deeper and deeper into his truth, into Scripture. And the word zeal here is, is very, very important. The word, the word zeal here means jealousy. It means enthusiasm. It means passion. Jesus is saying that I, I am passionate about my temple. I am passionate about what is happening in this place. And this is my father's house. I think so often we, we confuse the word envy and jealousy. We confuse these two words very often. To envy is to want something which belongs to another person. That is envy. To want something that's not yours, right? Now, jealousy, in contrast, is the fear that something which we possess will be taken away by another person. So jealousy is when something that you have or someone that you have is now having affections to someone else or is walking away from you. That is jealousy. And the truth is, as believers, you and I know that we own nothing. Nothing we have is ours. We are not entitled to anything, to our house, to our health, to our freedoms, to our families. Nothing we have is ours. Everything is a gift from God. The only person, the only being who has everything is God. And the only one who can actually feel jealousy is God, not man. All we can feel is anger. Something that's, that's yours is taken away from you. Guess what you feel? You feel angry. You feel rage. You feel, je- you feel envious. You feel covetous. God is the only one who can feel jealousy, and he has that feeling towards us, towards his temple. You know, I've seen this passage used to justify anger very often. And the truth is there, there are words in Greek and Hebrew for anger. But what the disciples saw was not anger. They saw passion. They saw a zeal in Jesus. It wasn't just anger. It wasn't rage. The Bible says in James 1.20, it says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Now, maybe Jesus felt angry. I don't know. But I, I can guarantee he did not sin in his anger. And in my, in my journey of being a believer, every time I have gotten angry, it hasn't been righteous. It's never been righteous. I've never been able to say he deserved it or she deserved it. Never been able to say that because my anger is out of my insecurities, out of my wanting to control people, to control situations. That's why I get angry. And it's always sinful. I've had to repent to people and to God over and over again when I get angry. And dear brothers and sisters, if you are someone who is prone to anger, it's not from the Lord. It's not godly, it's sin. And you need to repent to God for your anger. Maybe you've destroyed friendships because of your anger or relationships because of your anger. And you cannot just say, this is who I am. This is what ticks me off. No, we have no excuse of being angry. This is not from the Lord. If this means you need to repent to God and to people, then do that. This is Jesus showing his passion for his temple, not anger. This is not anger. I think so often we get caught up in our self-preservation with what I need, what I want, and we have all these emotions that, that, that say that, that communicate that, that we cannot see the brokenness that's all around us in the world. I think so often we are, we are so caught up in accusing the brokenness that we see. We're so upset of how things are happening in our society, in the world right now. We are angry at the world for all its brokenness, and we don't have time to stop and weep for it. Do you know something? When Jesus goes back to the temple three years from now, again, and yes, he tosses and turns tables all, all the way through, again, but when he walks to Jerusalem, he's weeping over Jerusalem. He's weeping over Jerusalem. You look at the prophets, the prophets in the Old Testament, every one of them, except Jonah. Jonah's an interesting guy. You should read him too, but, but he has a, an example to, to, that we should learn not to do. But every prophet in the Bible is broken for the brokenness that God reveals to them and what they see in the world around them. Dear church, are we broken for the, for the lost? Are we broken for what we see around us? Are we just angry? Are we just angry all the time with what's happening? Are we passionate about what we want God to do? You know, I think if we are broken, then God will reveal to us what we should be doing about it. But very often we just get angry and we do stuff out of our anger and frustration. And if that's you, I pray that God will convict you and he'll soften your heart. So the first thing we see is that the temple is the Lord's. He has a lot of passion for his father's house. The second thing we see is that the temple is Jesus. The temple is Jesus. We read this in verses 18 to 22 of John 2. We see, so it says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Do you notice how it says, They say, It has taken. They don't say, It took us. 46 years, because they did not build the temple. It was Herod's temple. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. Again, Jesus always points you back to scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And just so you know, the disciples are fresh. They're new in following Jesus at this time. 
very new. And Jesus is saying some really crazy things right now about his death and resurrection. And every Jew, when Jesus said the whole three days phrase, right, about three days, they knew he was talking about Jonah and the whale. So again, he's pointing back to Scripture. But it took the disciples three years to understand what he meant over here. They didn't follow what he said at this point because there's no way they knew this was going to happen. Sometimes it takes time for us to understand what God is doing in our lives. It takes time. I think very often we hear things or we read things and say, God, you're right, I should be doing this, but I don't know how to do it. And very often it could be hard to follow. But God wants us to hang in there, to keep walking with him, and he'll reveal all things to us. I like this beautiful, beautiful story of Jesus explaining to a lady who was living, was living in shame and hiding because of her sins of the whole idea of the concept of worship, the way it was done back then, of going to a temple, was all going to change. We see this in John, in John 4. He, said this to, he says this to the lady at, at the well. He says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. We see... Jesus talking to Nathaniel in John 1. He says, You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Another beautiful imagery that Jesus shows us when he died on the cross in Matthew 27. We see that the curtain, the curtain that was in the Holy of Holies was ripped from top to bottom. He became the sacrifice. He was the altar. We see this in Hebrews. He became the altar. He is the high priest. He is the bridge between us and the Father. We don't need a temple anymore. And Jesus is saying, hey, I have come so that you don't have to do all these things over and over again. Imagine seeing 1.2 million animals being sacrificed and their blood being drained at one place. And Jesus is saying, all this can stop. I'm here. I'm going to pay the price for all your sins once and for all. It's been done. I'm going to, I'm here. I am the, the sacrifice, I am the altar, I am the high priest, and I'm going to make one with you and my Father. I'm here to make peace. This is why Jesus is so passionate in the temple. And I love this imagery. So it took, takes three years for the, the disciples to see Jesus die and raise from the dead to say, oh yeah, that made sense back in the temple. We see one more thing that John sees at his older age. This is in the book of Revelation. When John writes this vision that he sees of the new city. Okay, this is in Revelation 21, verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The new heaven will not have a temple because Jesus will be the temple. It took him 50 years or 60 years to see that, that vision, to understand what Jesus was doing over here in the temple. Your church, Jesus reveals things to us in small, in small ways. And we have to press in. We have to wait on him for him to reveal things even more because I think very often we don't get it. We're not ready to receive what he's doing in our lives. It's hard teaching sometimes, but we have to continue to walk that walk with God and he'll reveal all things to us. So we see that the temple is Jesus. The third thing I want to I mention to you is that the temple the temple is you. The temple is you. This was also a thing that was revealed to the disciples much, much later. 
We see this in the writing of Paul to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And it's worth mentioning here that Paul is writing this a few years before the actual physical temple gets destroyed. And this time, it's not going to be rebuilt. Till today, we have the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And Paul is saying, you and I, we are the temple of the living God. I want you to go back with me and look at verse 17, when the disciples saw Jesus passionately cleaning the temple, right? And it says, the zeal of your house will consume me. This is in Psalms 69 verse 9. This is where they're getting this reference from. Having passion, having jealousy, right? Over his house, enthusiasm. Dear church, that is how Christ feels towards you and me. The same passion that he had in the temple is the passion he has towards you and me. And it's not anger. That's the beauty. It's not anger. Yes, he wants to clean house. He, yes, he wants to change our lives, but it's not out of anger. It's because he loves us so much. We sang the song earlier, he is jealous for me. The emotion that only God can feel, he feels it for you because he wants you to, to be cleaned up. He wants you to be sanctified. And it's a process that happens every day, every moment of every day. We see the word jealousy for God's people over and over again in the Old Testament. The whole book of Ezekiel has it repeated everywhere. I want to read to you one reference. Deuteronomy 4, verse 23 and 24. This is God talking to the people of Israel. He says, Take care, take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Jesus is jealous for you. Jesus is jealous for you. I can't even imagine what that, what that is. I get feeble when I think about it, that God, the, the God of the universe who has everything, is passionately jealous for me. That should wreck you when you hear that. God doesn't need anything, but he loves you with a passion that you and I cannot understand. You know, I think so often like the people in the temple who had all their stuff, all their stuff that was not godly, and Christ was throwing it out. If, if the temple is you, what is Jesus tossing out of your life right now? What is he tossing out? And what are you putting back the next day? How often do you put that stuff back? You fix those furniture, you fix the tables and put them back. Is that how we live? Is that what we've been doing? If your body is the temple of the living God, if your mind is the temple of the living God, Christ wants to purify you. He wants to sanctify you. How often do you justify your wickedness? How often do you justify your idols that you have in your temple? How often do you minimize the sin that you're dealing with, that you entertain in your life? I think so often we do that. We put it back. We bring it back in. Because this is normal. This is how I live. This is how I... This is how things go in my life. If that is you, I pray that you will repent before the Lord because he loves you with a passion that you cannot understand. And the beauty about 
about a God who's jealous for us is that he also defends us too. He defends us. He defends the weak. He defends you. You're not alone in your journey, in your battles. You're not alone. He's your defender. So I want to come back to that question that I asked you in the beginning. Why would Jesus cleanse the temple? What was his intent? The intent was to show you how much, how much passionately he's in love with you. It was never about the temple because he became the temple. And you are the temple. You are the temple of the living God. He's passionately in love with, with you, with us. We don't deserve it one bit, but Christ made the way for us to the Father that we can know him. And I think this kind of shows us the intent. The last couple of verses in John 2, 23 and 20 to 25, it says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the things he was doing. So they saw him flipping tables, and they believed in his name. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he did no one to bear witness about man, for himself knew what was in man. It's very, very much like a John writing right there. So many people were impressed with what Jesus was doing in the temple. And I think very often we see people following Jesus in the Bible for one specific thing. We see him feed the multitudes and people follow him, right? Then we see in John 6 where many left him because of the hard teaching that Jesus was teaching the disciples. Over here, people are saying, hey, he's a cool guy. I want to follow him. But Jesus did not want to start an uprising. He did not want to start an army that can take down the establishment. That was not his intent. And he knew what was in man's heart as to why they were following him. And I want to take you back to the verse of him traveling with the disciples. That is what Jesus wants from us. Because very often we see one thing he's doing and say, hey, I, this is what I want to do. And we totally misunderstand what Jesus is doing, right? We run ahead of him. Or we don't like it, we walk away. But, but Jesus is saying, hey, just walk with me. Just, just walk with me, and I will reveal all things to you. It'll all make sense. Just keep walking with me. It'll all make sense. We know that these guys wanted to follow Jesus, but many who were really hurt by what happened over here, because we see them using this as an accusation towards Jesus when he's on trial, but what he said in the temple about it being destroyed, right? Out of context, but they used that. They were hurt and angry, and they left Jesus out of anger. So you have three choices. One choice is that you run after one thing that Jesus does. Don't go to Scripture and just run ahead of Jesus and do what you want to do. Second option, get angry and walk away because you don't like what he's saying. Option three, you say, Jesus, I don't fully get it. Your word, at times, kind of hard to understand. I don't get your ways all the time. I don't understand how I should respond to what's happening, but I know you have the words of life. You have the answers, God. I don't get it, but I want to I continue to be humble and learn from your word. And that is what Jesus wanted from his disciples, to kind of hang in there. And today we are going to, we're going to take communion together. We're going we're gonna to remember what Jesus did. And I, I just love the fact that Jesus began the big <laughs> at the temple. His big appearance was at the temple. And then 
at the very end, after the triumphant entry, it ends in the temple too. We see how his entire ministry began and ends, begins and ends in this one place. And in this season of just celebrating his birth, I think it's good for us to remember that he came to die. And this morning, I want to, I want to invite you to rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. That the temple, the temple is his, that he became the sacrifice. And now you and me, we are the temple of the Most High God. And if you, if God is working in your heart right now, if you're being convicted of sin, of what you've been doing and justifying in your life, I really pray that God will convict you to bring you to your knees, that you will repent for all the things that you have been justifying. If it's been anger that you struggle with, I pray that God will give you freedom from your anger. No matter what the addiction, no matter what that is in your life that you're struggling with, Jesus wants it out. And he made a way that you can be free from the bondage of sin. We can be free in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to read this passage and then uh, the band can come up. And then you are free to respond in communion whenever you feel like it during the song. But I want you to do it out of a place of brokenness before the Lord. And if you want to pray with someone, we're here to pray with you as well after the service. Or whenever you want to pray, we'd love to pray with you. This is what it says. It says, this is Paul saying, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The, the cups and the bread is in the back of the room if you want to receive that. Whenever you want to do that, please do that. Um, God, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for your sacrifice. We want to thank you for showing us that we don't have to be stuck in providing and giving sacrifices to you over and over again, God. You're not a God of rituals. We thank you that you have made a way for salvation. God, we thank you for being patient with us, for patiently walking with us, even though we doubt, even though we run ahead of you, even though we get discouraged, you never give up on us, God. Thank you. God, thank you. I pray, God, that you'll help us to confess our sins and not justify them. Help us to repent before you. And as we partake in communion, God, help us to Remember of the sacrifice that you made for us. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. 
we remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him 